right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right. Welcome to In Your Corner with Cora Physical Therapy. Once again, you're asking yourself, Scott, how in the heck does Cora Physical Therapy always find these great, great individuals to talk about health? Well, it's it's in your corner. They're they're all about and they're all about giving and giving more and giving, giving more. Before you get going, remember to go out to CoraPhysicalTherapy.com. That is your first and only stop to a life of better health. It's an easy, it's a, it's an easy, easy website. I mean, I can navigate around it. And, and if I can navigate around it, you can navigate around it. That's CoraPhysicalTherapy.com. All right, before we get into the conversation, let's do a little round robin on introductions. Dr. Fernando, give us a little 411 on who you are. So originally born and raised in Miami, Florida. Um, after uh, high school, went up to New Jersey, uh, Central Jersey for undergrad. Uh, played football at Princeton. After that, went came back to Miami for medical school, did medical school down here at FIU. Then went on to do my orthopedic surgery residency at Wake Forest Baptist in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and then did a foot and ankle fellowship uh, at Duke uh, after that. Do you, do you follow Duke basketball? Is that, are you passionate about that? Not really. Uh, I didn't, I didn't go for undergrad, so I don't really have allegiance to them. And the year I was there was a COVID year, so we really couldn't go to the games much. So not, not really. uh, I I want to go to that, uh, their basketball venue, man. It it just seems like a cool place to be. All right, James, you're up to bat. Give us a little background. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, my name is James Fenton. I'm the regional manager for Cora physical therapy down in Miami Dade County. Um, I'm a Miami guy through and through. I was born and raised here, went to high school down here actually lucky enough to go to high school with Dr. Aran. Um, did my bachelor's degree at FIU and my DPT at the University of Miami. I, I, I always get amazed by uh, the level of talent. And then I just, I just kick it over to Dr. Rick and I just humbly just sort of scurry back. All right, Dr. Rick, it's up to you. These guys are well-trained. I mean, so this, yeah. this should be lively. <laughs> They're smarter than us, Scotty. Hey, that's again back to the bar. That's low. That's that's <laughs> easy too. Not to say you're not uh, trained enough, but it's a low bar. <laughs> all right, let's rock. So, so tonight, now, first of all, I want to thank you guys. And tonight is is really um, a topic that is very important, especially as a sports orthopedist, which is kind of what I do. Uh, and everything is involved around speed. So everything in my practice is for step speed, backpedaling, 40 times, et cetera. And obviously the rubber hits the road when your foot um, hits whatever, and that could be a football field, a track, et cetera. So what we're going to talk about tonight is, is foot dynamics and function and evolution. And based on that, um, what I and everybody wants to hear about is explaining or understanding the evolution of a foot. What, what's happened? Uh, how have we gone from a barefoot society when we were running around shooting bison 
to where we are now and, and implications that has in the forefoot, the hind foot, and uh, the midfoot. And uh, Dr. Ron, maybe you could start uh, give it, giving us that insight. Sure. So, you know, when we really think of ourselves, we rarely think of ourselves as animals, but we are animals and, and have evolved as such. And the foot is, is a, a very functional part of our ability to exist and compete. And at the, you know, for most of human history, we really haven't had, we haven't had corrective shoe wear. We haven't had corrective orthotics. There's been a fair amount of history where we have covered our feet with something, um, but not to the level that we do today. You know, up until probably about 60,000 years ago, you know, we really were competing in small kind of um, hunter-gatherer units before we, you know, before Homo sapiens starts to migrate out of East and North Africa. And, and at that time, right, there was numerous, or not, not, not a lot, but there were several Homo species, right? Homo Neanderthal, Homo sapien, probably being the two greatest species. And during our evolution, the ground, right, was not as predictable as it is today. Today, we walk on flat ground. It's all engineered to be flat. It's all engineered to be comfortable. And we, you know, we're on uneven grounds and, and a lot of times going into trees either to sleep or for refuge. So our foot was accommodating um, around these round surfaces. So your, your foot musculature really was much more dynamic and had to accommodate for a lot, you know, a, a lot, a, a lot of different environments. And that's kind of the, what took me down this rabbit hole first was probably something that a lot of people have read the born to run book by Chris McDougal. Um, but then after that, I went down a, a deeper rabbit hole and really the story of the human body by Daniel E. Lieberman was one that, that, you know, really got me thinking about the foot, the foot anatomy and how, you know, homo sapien is so different from really any of the other mammalian species out there. Um, and that's really what got me interested in foot and ankle. It was probably during my medical school where I went down this, you know, this train of thought and I couldn't help but realize or think about it during all my training that, you know, whenever we have a problem, the first instinct is to just make it comfortable, uh, make it comfortable and, and kind of go on. And, you know, that, that happens with corrective shoe wear and it happens with orthotics commonly, but then you see all of these feet. And they're, they're, when they come into my clinic and these people that have foot problems, they've been in orthotics for years and the foot musculature is all so atrophied. And once it's so atrophied, the, the foot loses its ability to be this dynamic, supple organ that really, you know, used to function to keep us alive. Um, that along with all of the sensory input that we really get to our brain it, the, the brain mapping of the hands and the feet are, are very, very similar yet. Um, you know, we really don't let our feet be exposed and let it take in all that sensory input, um, that it has the receptors, uh, to, to function in a very, um, amazing and dynamic way. 
You know, that's really interesting. And I, and I have a couple of questions that sure. I wasn't going to ask you, so I don't want to throw you a curveball. No, but, but I guess the first question is, so, so one of the things we do with our Olympic athletes, and we have a lot of Olympic athletes, is we really work on their inner osseous and their, and their small muscles, small musculature in their feet. So we have them mm-hmm. uh, trying to work through rice buckets and do all kinds of um, strengthening of, of just what you're talking about, small muscles of the feet. And I guess my first question is, because I never really thought about it, does that make you run any faster? And then my second question is, and maybe this should be my first question, what was the foot like 60,000 years ago? Was it more musculature? Were we more quadrupeds? I mean, what? how has it changed? Yeah. So really, I mean, Homo sapien really hasn't changed much from a, from a genetic and from a bony anatomical point of view, really for about 200,000 years. So the foot really hasn't changed much in its structure and its bony structure. Um, so let's, we'll start with that with this part and then we'll go to the running faster, but there's really a, a few variants on anatomy. And I was going to talk about midfoot really to like hone in on this, but humans have three variations of the first tarsal metatarsal joint. About a third of the population has one facet. A third of the population has two facets and a third has three. Now, now the ones with one facet have much more motion at the first tarsal metatarsal joint. And it's really the only people who develop bunions, um, the people who have one uh, facet at the tarsal metatarsal joint. There was a study done uh, by Mason and Tanaka in 2012 showing this. Um, and it really kind of opens your eyes to the fact that, that there's, you know, there are just a lot of variations in bony anatomy in the foot and human. And that can lead to, you know, more mobility, which may be favorable, but at the same time, the mo- more mobility may lead to pathology as well. Now, in, in regards to if your foot musculature is stronger, are you faster? The truth is, I mean, in my opinion, this again is going to be an opinion. It's absolutely yes. The, the quadratus planti and the abductor well, abductor digiti minimi, but really the abductor hosis longus and the QP are such, such strong muscles. And if you are thinking about the whole kinetic chain, right? I mean, your speed coaches are looking, you know, a lot at your abductors and your hips. They're looking at your glute max, looking at your quads and hamstring. And that's great. But the foot itself with the Achilles tendon as well, but the foot itself is such an amazing spring. And, you know, in sprinters, I think it's, it's, it will definitely give you a little bit more speed if you can get your foot extrinsic, intrinsic stronger, but it's absolutely essential in distance running because the smaller musculature is much more efficient from an energy point of view. And that having that functional dynamic spring in the foot can allow you to really be an exceptional distance runner uh, and have much, much higher efficiency. So, so I guess I'm going to ask another question that I really wasn't expecting to ask. And, and James, how, how do we make um, the foot stronger and more efficient in, in a long distance runner or a mid distance runner? What do we got to do? What, what are we going to tell the listeners out there to do for their children or their college athletes or their Olympic kids to make their foot midfoot stronger and um, improve push-off strength. Yeah. 
It's a good question. The, the first thing I'd say is call Dr. Aran. And then the second thing is call us. And it really boils down to, like Dr. Aran was saying, really strengthening the intrinsic muscles of the foot. Um, and there's various ways we could do that in the clinic. And it's not, it's not as simple as, say, you know, doing a bicep curl. Right? If you do a bicep curl, you're going to strengthen your bicep. But strengthening the intrinsic muscles of the foot really requires the skill of a PT to be putting the patient on, you know, whether it's a dynamic surface, a compliance surface, uh, changing the perturbations, where the stress is coming from, um, but all focusing on, on the foot, particularly with the foot on the ground. Because like we said at the very beginning, once that foot touches the ground, everything, everything else up the chain changes. So are there specific exercises we should, you know, if you want to bump up your biceps, there's three or four exercises that work the different components of the biceps and voila, you look like Scott, you're all ripped up. What, what do we have to do to increase the strength of your biceps? I mean, foot. midfoot and you're in <laughs> the, the muscles of the foot, uh, you know, using foam pads is something that we do quite a bit in the clinic. Um, it's really something that requires, a lot of information to travel up the chain. And as that information travels up the chain, um, your muscles have to respond, right? You know, there's, a, there's a principle that we like to follow. It's called the SED principle, specific adaptations to imposed demands. So if we're asking the foot to perform a certain function, particularly on a compliant, on a compliant surface, then eventually those muscles are gonna have to respond to that demand. And that's how we get the foot stronger. I know Dr. Aran is a proponent of toe spacers. It's another way that we can make the intrinsic muscles of the foot stronger. Um, so whether on a foam pad with or without toe spacers, having the patient do any number of different, you know, functional or sport specific activities will definitely get the job done. So along those same, same lines, Dr. Aran, what, what, explain external footwear and explain corrective shoes. You know, when we were residents and I was a resident way before you were a resident, we put kids, you know, and we put their shoes on the opposite foot. We did all kinds of crazy things, which we now have learned were really stupid, but you know, we were kind of stupid. So at, at this point, explain to us what external forces do to the foot and how they change sort of the inherent strength of the, of, of the foot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even to this day, you know, my, my son, my first son was born. He had bad adductus of his feet and the grandparents were like, put the shoes on backwards. And I was like, guys, that's not how this works, but the, the body is amazing, you know, and, and the human body is, is very dynamic and it responds to stress, right? No matter what we do, our body responds to stress and it's a living organism. So as you load the foot, as you load really any part of the body, um, your bones, tendons, ligaments, muscles, all act together to really oppose forces, right? And, and create a strong construct. So, you know, the, the kids who had adductus, the truth is that as they start walking, as they start putting, you know, pressure down on their feet, sometimes they have, you know, various or bowed legs as well, because it's part of, you know, packaging in the, in the uterus. But, but as you come out and you start to stress it, the, the, you know, in orthopedics all the time, we talk about Wolf's Law. And Wolf's Law is basically that your bone is reacting to the stress and you're creating uh, like strong pillars of compression 
um, also tension bands, but strong pillars of compression wherever you see the stress. So, so it, you know, as far as bones, tendons, and ligaments are concerned, you know, you have to have that stress and that feedback for your body to organize itself in a way where it can respond to those stresses. So, so to take that one step further, mm-hmm. are, are we diminishing the stresses? Are we altering the stresses by shoes in general, orthotics in general, um, and any type of corrective shoe or, or brace that's altering the normal biomechanics of the foot? So, you know, this is my, again, this is my opinion. And I'd say that a lot of the field probably would not necessarily agree with this statement, but I think so. I think that our foot has to see the stresses in order for it to be a dynamic, healthy part of our body. And I'm a, you know, I'm not saying that there's no place in the world for orthotics. Somebody has an acute injury and you're trying to give them offload a certain part of the foot to allow it to heal. Um, And again, same thing with bracing. If you're trying to give somebody time to heal and offload a certain part, I think there is a place in the world for corrective shoe wear, corrective orthotics for a short period of time while you're healing from a surgery or from some sort of acute injury. But I do think that we are doing a disservice um, to people by telling them, hey, you're broken. You have to wear this orthotic the rest of your life. Um, Because I do think that you know, some people that have, you know, a slightly flatter foot, a little bit of Pez planus or, or, uh, you know, a slightly different variation can have perfectly healthy functional feet. So, you know, this is so interesting. So you're in, you're in the clinic, kid walks in six eleven NBA basketball player, just the flattest feet in the world. Absolutely. Like you said, Pez planus, just ridiculous. Doesn't reconstitute just nothing playing, doing fine. And somebody said when he was 13, you have to wear these orthotics. So they put him in orthotics and he's always worn orthotics. I don't know why. Luckily he didn't just develop a stress fracture. Let's go down both paths. Are, are, are you better off? So that kid comes in, he's 13, he's 14, he's six, seven, six, six, he's 13. Totally flat foot. Are you going to, and doesn't really have complaints. Maybe his knees got a little bit of knee pain. And so someone said, Hey, we need to reconstitute your arch to help your knee. Um, A, you, you put that kid in orthotic or what do you do? And I'll ask James the same question. And then number two, you hear about doctors doing this little thing where they reconstitute the arch by putting in these little spacers. Oh boy. I'm I'm already getting a look here. So I think we're going to have a good answer. So what's the answer? The arthroaresis screw. We'll hit that. We'll hit that second. But, but, you know, one of one of the running backs on my team in 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 college, Jordan Colbert, amazing, amazing athlete. You know, he was so fast; he could change directions immediately, and he had the flattest foot. His talus was on the floor. You know, um, so I think that that. I wouldn't, if they've been in orthotics their whole lives and they're, they're playing great and they have no complaints, I, I'd maybe decrease the amount of correction through the orthotic. But with all these things, you want to be careful how big of a change you make, especially in an elite athlete. So I wouldn't say, hey, you have to go barefoot, minimalist shoe wear right away. Make small changes because if they're competing at a high level, you don't want to throw them off too much because 
again, they've had the stresses in the way they've had them for a long time. And, and you don't want to change too much because you can lead to another injury by doing that. Um, so I wouldn't put them in a corrective. I wouldn't put them in an orthotic, not a corrective orthotic. Um, and I would have him work on being barefoot sometimes and work on having him on say a balance beam or some sort of uneven surface so that he can start working again, the QP quadrus plantae and his abductor halysis to see if you can reconstitute some of his arch. Um, but don't change too much. Now the arthroresis screw, it, it's been around for a while in the podiatry circles. It's used a lot. And basically what it is, is they put this spacer that's, it's kind of like a screw, but they put a spacer in the sinus tarsi. So they come in from the lateral side, they put it between really kind of your talus and your calcaneus to push the calcaneus out of a valgus position and kind of reconstitute some of the arch. It's, I would never recommend it really for anybody. Um, mm -hmm. All of the patients end up constituting an arch. Having a flat foot is a very normal part of adolescence. Since you're growing so much, you tend to be ligamentously a little bit more lax. So having a flat foot between say eight years old and 13 or 14 years old is a normal variation and you shouldn't touch it. And the arthroresis screws are not benign. They can cause issues. Um, a lot of times, what I see most often is they just get spit out. Um, and then you just have to take them out, but they can cause an injury to the sinus tarsi, which you, or to the sinus tarsi and to the subtalar joint, and they can cause injury as well. Um, so even though it's accepted in, in some circles, um, the foot ends up correcting itself in 95% of cases. And in that 5% where it doesn't, you can have a perfectly healthy, dynamic flat foot. And I don't think it's worth ever using an arthroresis screw. That's excellent. And I think everyone needs to hear that because you're right. The podiatrists are in love with those. Um, I wouldn't say all podiatrists, but here in St. Louis, it's a common operation. Um, I've had a number of track athletes, some gold medalists, again, total, just nothing. And, um, and, you, and you're always nervous about altering the biomechanics of the foot and somebody who's, you know, breaking the world's record, jumping over hurdles. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so James, give us, patient comes in your uh, clinic, into your knee pain, you look at their dynamics, they have pretty significant pronation. What do you do? Yeah, well, I mean, like Dr. Hedong was saying, right? We're, we're, we're putting these patients on compliance surfaces, a foam beam, having them, you know, depending on the sport that they're participating in, whether it's track or, you know, football, um, having them do some, some sport-specific activity, some hand drills, uh, some coordination drills while maintaining them, their, their balance on that foam pad, um, just any number of things to really challenge that musculature of the foot. And, and I agree with Dr. Arang 100%. If they're asymptomatic and in, in adolescence they have a flat foot, there's no reason for us to change it. There's no reason for us to go in there and recommend this patient go see an orthotist. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense. So the communication between the physician and the therapist here is, is key, particularly because, you know, someone like Dr. Aran, who's so specialized in the foot, can give us so much more information than we can have just off, off of our physical exam. Um, but to, to answer your question, Dr. Lehman, it's really about putting them on those compliance surfaces, on dynamic surfaces, challenging them, you know, what, maybe taking away their vision, 
having them rely a little bit more on that proprioception, um, that feedback from the ground. We tend to think of ourselves as standing on the ground and us kind of gravity pushing us into the ground, but we tend to forget that the ground is pushing us back up. And that information from the ground up tends to be what gets these muscles to, to turn on or to turn off. And that's something that I think is very important, particularly in an athletic population, um, to really take advantage of that. Excellent. Let's go back to, let's change venues just a little bit. Let's go back to probably the most common problem. I don't really see most of mine are sports injuries, so I don't see this problem very much, but you know, everybody asks you about it. And certainly it's a significant part of, of our group practice, maybe not my practice, you know, the garden variety, boring bunion people come in, um, explain what a bunion is. And, and you, you were off to a pretty good start talking about the um, tarsal metatarsal joint. Tell us kind of your thoughts on care and treatment of a bunion, uh, what a bunion is, and is, is there something we're doing wrong uh, in our care and treatment of bunions in, in general? Sure. So, you know, most people know or have heard of bunions. And I've had a mom or an aunt or themselves, you know, that have a bunion. And the, when most people think of the bunion, they're thinking about the bump there in the forefoot, on the medial side of the forefoot, really at the first metatarsal phalangeal joint or the first MTP. And for a lot of years, we've given the first MTP really the lion's share of the attention of what a bunion is, right? Because that's where a lot of patients hurt. That's where their deformity is. That's what they don't like. So, you know, it's one of those things, and Dr. Lehman, you know this, but, but in orthopedics, there's like 120 different ways to fix a bunion, right? Uh, nobody seems to, you know, have a consensus on, on how to fix this. Now, I, I think some of these more recent studies on bunions, and like I said, that, that, uh, that anatomical study by Tanaka um, on the first tarsometatarsal joint, really only people with one facet develop it you know, gives us some insight. Um, and then there's a, a few papers recently on the three-dimensional deformity of the bunion and how it's not just, you know, we call it hallux valgus or, you know, the first toe kind of going off towards the lateral side of the foot. Um, but it's not only a two-dimensional deformity, there's really a third dimension to it, um, which will is a rotational deformity at the first metatarsal. And I'd say as well as um, possibly some instability at the first TMT. Now, you know, everybody talks about uh, that instability at the first TMT. Is it really there? Is it not there? I think that just the ability to have the base of the first metatarsal rotate because it's a flat surface um, is enough instability, again, to give you what we call a bunion. Now, you know, I have a lot of patients come in with bunions and they're like, oh, I have these bunions. And my first question is really, does it hurt you or bother you? Because the, the bunion, in my opinion, is a normal anatomic variant. Um, if you have a single facet first TMT, you have a little bit more of a mobile first ray. And I think having a bunion can be or is a normal anatomic variant. The question is, one, does it cause you so much pain that you are altering what you do? And two, is the deformity bad enough that it's altering the health of your second toe. So a lot of times when the bunion gets significant enough, 
and it starts to, to, you know, drift under your second lesser toe, you know, you can have a plantar plate injury, you start to develop a hammer toe. Um, so then just because, you know, of the general forefoot alignment and health, it may be time to think about doing a bunion procedure, but I really like to, you know, you know, preface it with the fact that I, in my opinion, this is a normal variant and it's not until it's very painful or it's causing you uh, so much deformity that it's affecting the rest of your forefoot. It's time to do something about it. And so, you know, as you said, there's a zillion operation, lapidus, there's a million yeah. operations. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite or is every patient different that you say, well, you much you're much better suited for a proximal metatarsal osteotomy or, or how do you decide if you're going to operate um, the procedure and kind of give us your thought process? Cause, cause that's important to people listening out there in terms of um, kind of how you work through this process, you know, how you evaluate the dynamics of, of, of somebody who's got Halix valgus. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I did this and hopefully it'll be published soon, but a huge review of all the literature on bunions really since everything published from 2001 forward. And if you look at the aggregate data, the truth is that distal mid shaft and proximal osteotomies plus or minus an Aiken all fare similarly similar. Um, they all meet clinical significance when you look at them uh, uh, like on a long-term basis as far as a positive outcome. The soft tissue, soft tissue procedures with or without uh, an osteotomy of the proximal phalanx are not as good from, a, from an outcomes point of view. But, you know, I think we've kind of borne that out and most people would probably have that same sentiment. Now, this is a, an ideological thing. In my, in, my, in my head, this is an ideological thing, um, but it's hard for me to cut and push over a perfectly normal bone in the first metatarsal distally to correct a problem that's happening somewhere else. Now, I think this, this, this is ideological for me. And again, it's an opinion, but if it's only happening in person in, in people with a single facet in their first tarsal metatarsal joint. And there is a rotational component in 87% of bunions. Then I think you have to do a procedure that addresses the rotational component. And in, again, this is my opinion, but in my opinion, in, a, in the majority of my cases, and at least 87% that have the rotational deformity as well, I'm going to go to the first tarsal metatarsal joint to do my correction. So I'm going to do a lapidus, but again, the original lapidus had so much, they were concentrated so much in the two-dimensional deformity that, that I, and this will, this will bear out with time. I may be wrong. We'll see. But I do think that if you can correct both the, the rotational deformity and the instability that leads to it at the first tarsal metatarsal joint, I, I think it will do better. Um, but I don't know that. So, so the, my, my answer is I, I go to a lapidus the great majority of the time. And real quick, James, how do you rehab a lapidus? Proximal metatarsal osteotomy. What do you, what, I mean, what, so what, what has to happen to get 
that person from coming into your clinic after they start therapy through therapy and how long does it take? Yeah. And, you know, there's so many variations, so many different things that can impact the outcome. Um, but typically, initially, obviously, we're trying to protect the surgery, make sure that things heal as they're supposed to. Uh, when the patient is ready and cleared to do, you know, whether it's weight bearing exercises or, you know, uh, depending on, on, on where we're headed with this, um, plyometrics or just basic gait training and balance training, really what we're looking for is, is not just an improvement in the health and structure of their foot, but functional independence, right? Like that's, that's our end game, getting the patient back to doing the things that they couldn't do prior to this, this procedure. Um, you know, the timetable, it's, it's difficult for me to say, uh, you know, you're looking anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months, depending on, <clears throat> depending on the, the severity of the dysfunction prior to the procedure. Um, but again, really our, our focus is functional independence, getting the patients back to what they care about most um, and not necessarily a, a perfect structural foot because again there's so many different things that could have led us to that point excellent so so when the athlete says hey how long is it going to take me to go play golf or how long is it going to take me to go start to jog again what do you say that's the first um, question they're gonna they don't ask me but they're they're gonna ask dr ron what when can i go play golf yeah so yeah. i think that's really a, a surgeon specific thing and and each surgeon will probably give you a different answer but for me, for most lapiduses, I, I tell them it's going to be about four months before you return to sport. What about running? Same. Okay. I want to see a solid fusion across it. You usually see it around three months or so, but I'll have them start to do kind of return to sport activities at the four month mark. And as long as they go through their progression and they're not painful, they can, they can, they can proceed. Excellent. So let's talk about the midfoot for just a little bit. Let's talk about rigidity. And we can talk about the hind foot as well, but let's talk about, we've talked about hypermobility, a little bit of flat foot, pest penis. How do we address somebody with rigidity and, and, and maybe, and not, you, you can talk about a cavus foot or, um, but, but what, what's your thought process there? It really depends. I mean, to me, it depends one on the deformity we're looking at and if it's leading to recurrent injury or not. Um, so I think probably, you know, for you, Dr. Lehman, and really for the PT community that the cable varus foot, right. And a basketball player is probably one of those things where, you know, you have this anatomic difference that's leading to, you know, possibly recurring ankle sprains or, you know, fifth metatarsal overload or something along those lines. Now, it really depends on the level of athlete in the very, very elite athlete, say you're Kevin Durant's of the world, right. With fifth metatarsal overload or, or, or somebody that's playing at the professional level. Um, less is more while they're in their professional career. Um, you know, if they break their fifth metatarsal, you're probably going to fix it and just put a screw on it in it and probably not try to, address the, the, the cable varus right away. Um, again, maybe being in a corrective orthotic while they're healing that maybe you know, something you would look at, 
But for me, you always go to the primary deforming force. And if you can address the primary deforming force, I think you're probably going to get the most bang for your buck. And, you know, in foot and ankle, I know there's a million osteotomies we do. And like, everybody's going to throw like, you know, like a calc slide and do all these crazy things, but all those bones are normal. You know, that's where I like, I struggle a lot with a lot of like the dogma that's out there in that, you know, for your flat foot, you do a five and one correction, you cut the calcaneus two times, you cut the, you know, caneiform, you cut all these things when all those things are normal, you know? So if I had, you know, a high level athlete, this deformity is leading to so much injury that they can't play. Then I'm going to talk about probably doing right. Like a posterior tibial tendon lengthening. And I know that that like people really haven't talked about that and maybe I'll start doing that and maybe it won't go well. And maybe I'll go back to cutting all the bones a million different ways. Um, but I really think that if you go after the primary deforming force, that you're going to be better off. Um, and maybe again, maybe you do a, you know, cause again, the posterior tibial tendon is so strong, but maybe I do like a five or six millimeter lengthening on it. And I, I then I look at the foot and it's still got a ton of cavus. So I think that, you know, plantar fascia is a little bit tight. I may do a little bit of a plantar fascial release as well. Um, but to me, trying to address the dynamic forces leading to the deformity is where I think that we could make a big difference in the flexible deformities, like you had said, which is probably the majority of your patients. The inflexible deformities, you have to go to the bones because it's the, they just don't move. But in the flexible deformities, I think you go to the deforming force. And I think that's really helpful. I think it's helpful for the PTs listening and the MDs listening and everybody listening because, you know, that's, that's your, your, your basic concept of, of alignment, you know, I mean, in the throwing athlete, what, you know, what are you, what are you trying to do? Trying to unload the medial elbow, you know, how are you going to do that? So I think that's really very interesting. I, 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 I think that, um, and this is just me personally, if I've got a professional athlete and, and, and they're having complex foot surgery, you know, they have a Liz Frank injury or whatever, um, you know, I'm hanging crepe. I'm, I'm telling, like, I, I've probably seen, I don't know, I've been in this, 36 years, they're probably seeing a hundred Liz Frank injuries, either D1 kids or pro kids. And and I can't say that too many of them have come back well. Um, and a lot of them haven't come back at all. Um, a couple come to mind that have been disasters. So I think again, your idea of saying, you know, let's correct the deforming force. Let's maybe look at the soft tissue. Uh, and, and a bony deformity is a bony deformity. And, and I agree with you. So I, I really think that's a refreshing way to look at it because I think a lot of these things, once you do something that's just so severe, there's, there's no coming back. I mean, the x-ray may look great and the foot may look great and the answer is still terrible. But let's go to one more issue and then um, since we're, we're, we're intriguing me maybe more than everybody else. Um, somebody comes in, they have um, your, your boring Achilles tendon spur. They're 53 years old. Um, they've got pain. Kind of a bump on pain. Uh, you get an MRI, shows degeneration of the Achilles tendon at the insertion, and they got that big old bump sticking out the back. Maybe Mrs. Jones is wearing the wrong shoes. 
Uh, how do we address that? Yeah. So your insertional Achilles tendonitis and really that Hagelin's deformity or that big bone spur in the back. Um, a lot of my attendings at Duke would just, you know, go right to cutting it all out and splitting the Achilles tendon and pulling it all out. And, you know, the, the truth is, and I saw, I, I've seen it a lot, is that really the non-operative management doesn't necessarily do great, but I still try that first. Um, I like to try, you know, you know, eccentric stretching, you know, modification in shoe wear. Um, and then, and then the question is, when do you pull the trigger on doing an operative procedure for it? And then what, what operative procedure do you go to? And, you know, I, I know that there's like some minimally invasive things that are kind of hot right now that 10 X and a few things where people just are like, Oh, it's magic. You just shove this in there and wave a wand around and it's better. Um, but but I, I'm kind of, I don't know if this is like kind of old school or not, but I do think that, that if you failed non-operative management, it's really bothering you that much, then you just go ahead, you, you know, do a, a you know, central posterior approach to Achilles tendon, split it, you cut the whole spur away, and then you tack, you tack the tendon back down. I think, you know, very often what I see when I see it fail, it's because the surgeon didn't take away that you know, that Haglund's deformity or that bump in the back, they leave, you know, a lot of it posterior, posterior laterals, almost always where they end up leaving, you know, that, that bone. Um, so I think you do, you know, a pretty aggressive release and then you, you tack it back down. It, what the MRI question is interesting. Um, and again, um, last year, a, a lot of my attendings didn't really get any MRIs on it and they just go straight to it, chop it open, um, and then, you know, cut out just the rubbery degenerative tendon. Um, but for me, you know, if you have greater than 50% involvement of the tendon, I just want to know that and have something on backup. So if I've made the decision to go operative, I, I, I do like to get MRIs to tell you the truth. And, and it's, it's really, for me, from a surgical planning point of view, it just tells me like, Hey, you know, please have some, you know, allograft Achilles tendon, you know, in the fridge or something. Um, or, you know, just be ready to maybe do, you know, an FHL transfer, um, because, um, I don't want to leave them, you know, with an Achilles tendon that's not going to be functional. And, and I guess along those same lines, um, Ocetron, biologics, anything else pique your attention, uh, for that problem or is that, you know, not really effective. So, you know, I, I know that in, in, in Achilles, you know, tendinosis, you know, the, the PRP is, you know, sometimes shown, you know, you know, better than placebo, you know, effects in the insertional Achilles tendonitis. I don't really think the biologics make that much of a difference. When I was in undergrad, I did a lot of stem cell research on like embryonic stem cells and spinal cord injuries. And the truth is that, that the cells you inject really don't make that much of a difference because they just end up turning into whatever the environment's telling it to turn into. So, you know, here we were using these, you know, completely omnipotent cells and they're all turning into scar tissue. And it's just that the, the, whatever the environment is saying is what's going to happen with the cells. So 
I'm not super gung ho on it, but but um in mid substance Achilles tendinosis, I, I do think there's a role for it. Um in insertional Achilles tendinitis, never inject steroid, right? Because it can lead to a rupture. But but I'm not I'm not huge honestly on on biologics. What are what are your thoughts? Um well, I, I think mid-substance, when they have that big lump, and like you said, they do a lot, of, you get them on a lot of eccentrics. We do a lot of dry needling. We really try to mobilize, and maybe games could hit, hit us up a little bit. Um, and we really try to mobilize the tendon, and, and we've had good luck. I'm not a big fan of surgery on the Achilles and elite athletes, and that is a big part of my practice. Um, I think that in the older person that has, uh, insertional Achilles tendonitis, when you operate on them, it takes forever to get them better. I mean, it's, it's shocking to me how long they come in and complain. And, and since I don't do the surgery, I kind of get it secondhand. So you operate on someone's shoulder and they say, Hey, can you talk to my mom? She had her Achilles operated on 18 months ago and she's still sore. So I'm not a big fan. Um, I think, I think when you have bony changes and you have necrotic tissue, I don't know that the biologics are all that helpful. And I think the hype has hurt us a little bit. You know, people come in and they've got all this stuff and all these places that are going to do all this magic stuff. And then they don't get better and they're out two grand for not much. Uh, juice isn't really worth the squeeze there. So in my opinion, um, you treat them mechanically, like you said, and if you have to operate on them, you, you tell them it's a long haul and, you know, you give them the, give them the option. So it, it's a tough problem. I mean, it really is. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, it, it's not uncommon. So I, I think obviously we don't have a good answer. Yeah, I, I do. I, I tell them, you know, and that's why I think I like to lay the groundwork with, you know, starting with non-operative management too, because it's, it's part of like developing the relationship with the patient as well. But I really, I tell them, you know, this is going to be three months where you're going to be upset that you did this, you know, and then it's going to, you know, by six months, you're going to be like, okay, maybe I'm a little bit better, but it's going to be a whole, you know, it's going to probably be a whole year to two years before your swelling's down. And you're not thinking about this, you know, when you go to do an activity and like, and that has to, you have to be willing to cross that bar to say, yes, I want to have surgery on this in my, in my opinion. No, and I think that's the key. The key I mean, you know, they always said every, everybody, you know, manage expectations. And, and I think this is really a case where, you know, you have to manage expectations. So when they come back in nine months and say they're sore, you say, well, I told you you're going to be sore. And, yeah. and, you know, they go home and they say, well, he did tell me I was going to be sore. Um, well, this has been unbelievable, kind of not the direction I thought we'd go in, but, but fascinating. Um, and I think very informative for everybody out there. Um, James, what do we forget? What should we have talked about? Or what, what, what do we want to tell everybody that we didn't tell everybody? I mean, I think if if you're finding yourself with some sort of functional mobility deficit, um, particularly when you're up on your feet, the first thing we need to look at is well, it's your foot. Um, and, and whether it's someone in one of our clinics uh, evaluating the dynamics, the stability of your foot, or someone like Dr. Arang taking a much higher level uh, view of this, I think that's that's something that has kind of escaped us. Um, Because we tend to look at where the problem is rather than where the problem 
could have potentially originated. Um, so, it, you know, my advice to, 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 the, to the crowd listening, you know, if you got something going on, uh, particularly in a lower extremity, uh, your knee, your hip, start at the beginning of the kinetic chain and that's, that's your foot. Excellent. Doctor, give me your, give me your closing thoughts. What should we have talked about? So I think, I think we hit it all, but you know, really, I think if you boil it down, if you're going to just kind of hit this in a blurb, it's you know, the, the foot's an amazing piece of anatomy, you know, and, and I think we've done some disservice to it by covering it up all this time. If, if you, you know, some patient goes, Hey, how can I make my foot healthier? Be barefoot part of the time and, and try to stay away from, you know, corrective shoe wear and orthotics. Um, I think that alone would make a huge difference in a lot of people. And, and, you know, for a long time, you know, I think we've just overthought it and, you know, we want to always fix everything, you know, with tools that we have control of. Um, but I think that, that the body needs to be stressed. Um, and when it, when you stress it, it responds and it, it, it's going to respond, you know, with hopefully, you know, a healthy dynamic supple foot. That's excellent. Um, and, and I think that's really good advice. I think also the caveat there is make sure, you know, you're seeing somebody like yourself who has a significant expertise um, because it is a lot more complicated. And I think sometimes people get crazy bad advice. We were talking about the subtalar screw. Um, I, I mean, the sinus tarsi screw, I, I, I think Sometimes we get we get off on a tangent and we think we really understand something and we don't. And maybe sometimes you have to walk it back and say, hey, let's go send you to someone who this is all they do. They really understand this. And maybe we need a little different perspective. And certainly we got a different perspective tonight. I think it was, it was awesome. So you guys, thank you very, very much. Yeah, you guys are thank absolutely excellent, man. I, I, I really enjoyed one. I love history and I love the way it started out with uh, the history of the foot. I didn't really, I, I never thought of that. I, I, now that I, you've changed the way I think, uh, Dr. On, let me ask you this one question. My, um, my feet are good, right? And anybody out there, maybe their feet are good. And, um, I've been focused on a lot of like yoga, isometrics, type balance type things, you know, and, and yeah, you're, you're, you're barefoot. But would is that a, a a good routine sort of to for foot health as I get older and older and older? And because I, I find I like it, but it puts a lot of stress on the old tootsies. Yeah, it's it is a good routine. And and again, in, in my opinion, it, your foot really should hurt. Like if you're using it on a semi-regular basis, oh, it hurts. So, yeah, yeah, and 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 again, we shy away from pain so often, and and people really don't want to hurt nowadays. But it's part of being alive, and 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 I think Absolutely. that to have healthy feet, it means that you're going to have a little bit of pain in your feet because there's just so much of your brain attributed to your feet, and 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 you have so many, you know. Um, so many nerve fibers ending in your foot. And the truth is that, that, you know, if, if you're doing, if you're even just walking barefoot outside, your foot's going to hurt. Um, but I do think that it's better than the alternative of having this kind of dead atrophied foot with, you know, fat pad atrophy 
and like, you know, a, a gnarly bunion because your abductor halysis doesn't work. And like this foot that then, you know, it's like the princess and the pea. They just, then they took their foot off and they're in so much pain and then they need, you know, corrective orthotics and then they live their lives, you know, just trying to shy away from pain. Um, so, so you're doing all the right things, Scott, and I would, I would keep doing it. Well, there you go. I feel better about myself because I got to tell you, sometimes it's just as hard when you're, you know, when you're struggling with an Eagle balance, whatever the thing is in yoga. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm choosing some choice words. All right. How do the listeners get a hold of you, uh, Dr. Aran? So, um, miamiboneandjoint.com is our practice website. Um, I also have um, some additional content on uh, my personal website, FernandoAranMD.com. Um, I don't really have like a professional Instagram or, or Facebook, but people say that I should do that. So maybe I will at some point. But right now, I'd say that really the easiest thing is really the group, the practice website and my personal website. Very good. Uh, it looks like uh, James popped off. So uh, I would imagine that uh, James can be located at corephysicaltherapy.com. How about that for a segue? So go out there, find James at corephysicaltherapy.com. You will not be disappointed with that website. Uh, James wants to pop back on. That's what James wants to do. So let me just sort of get him to pop back on, and he doesn't have to hear my voice talk about how James get old. All right. But hey, I, I got to tell you, I, I've really enjoyed it, and I like the measured approach because my dad had a bone spur. I remember that as a boy. Had a bone spur, whatever that is. And, of course, I'm thinking to myself, it looked like this. <laughs> Whatever that looked like, it looked like a spur. And uh, he would get shots, and it would be okay for a little while. And then, uh, you know, I, I just didn't know what, but he had one, and it was painful for him. But then he was very sedentary, too. Hey, James, we're wrapping it up, and we need to get a hold of you. Who? How do we get a hold of James? Yeah, sorry, my internet just kind of crept out on me. Um, I, listen, I'd be happy to field anybody's calls. You can reach me at 786-459-4090. My email address is jfenton, uh, the number one, uh, at corahealth.com. Um, and if there's anything I can do for anyone out there listening, I'd be happy to help. All right. You guys were a great panel. Excellent conversation. Loved the topic. Dr. Rick, you knocked it out of the park as usual. Once again, go out to corephysicaltherapy.com. Find out more. That is a great site run by great people. Uh, just really focused on your health. So go out there, corephysicaltherapy.com. Again, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. And listeners, we're going to have another great conversation right around the corner. So stay tuned. We're going to be right back.